I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the New Testament to Colossians chapter number one this morning. Colossians chapter number one. It was on Wednesday, July 16th of 1969 that Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Edwin Aldrin boarded the Apollo 11 spacecraft and lifted off from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. After a four-day flight, the Apollo 11 and its three astronauts arrived at the moon. The lunar module, or the, the eagle it was called, carrying Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, separated from the command module, the Columbia, and landed on the moon at a place called the Sea of Tranquility. At 10.56 p.m., Eastern Daylight Time on July 20th, 1969. Some of you remember that day. Neil Armstrong became the first human to ever set foot on the surface of the moon. And of course, we all know the pro profound statement that he made. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Armstrong and Aldrin then removed a sheet of stainless steel to unveil a plaque affixed to the lunar module leg under the descent ladder. The astronauts read the inscription to the worldwide television audience, and I quote, Here men from planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969 A.D. We came in peace for all mankind. What an accomplishment. But think of how sad it is that the most spectacular event ever accomplished by mankind was done in the name of peace when peace has never been accomplished by mankind. General Douglas MacArthur once said, since the beginning of time, men have sought peace. Military alliances, balances of power, leagues of nations, all in turn failed, leaving the only path to be by way of the crucible of war. Historians have figured that since 3600 BC, the world has only known 292 years of peace, or about 5% of world history. During that time, there have been 14,531 wars, large and small, 8,000 peace treaties have been made and broken, and even at this very hour, there is war happening in Eastern Europe. And the irony of the lunar mission landing at the Sea of Tranquility is that while suspended between heaven and earth, there on the moon, that mission did not bring peace on earth or peace between heaven and earth. The only peace between heaven and earth is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what our text this morning, Colossians 1, specifically verses 21 through 23, explains. It explains that reconciliation or peace between heaven and earth, between God and man, is only accomplished by Jesus Christ. I prepared a message from this text titled, The Richness of of reconciliation. Let me pause briefly for prayer. Lord, as we come to the Holy Scripture now, I pray that you'll help us to see Jesus. And may we understand that reconciliation or peace 
between God and man is found only in the man, Christ Jesus. We commit our study to you now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Colossians 1, verses 21 to 23 is the specific text, but let me begin reading again in verse 19, and I want you to look for the theme of reconciliation. I know the scripture text has already been read, but it's worth our reading again. Colossians 1, verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile. There is our theme, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled, our theme again, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word reconcile or reconciliation, that theme is one of the five key words used in the New Testament to describe the richness of salvation in Jesus Christ. And I want to identify and define those terms as a launching pad for us, pun intended, get it? Launching pad, right? As a launching pad for us um, for our study this morning. We, We might call these things a gospel glossary, and they are the bullet points there in your notes. First is the term justified. Justified, that first bullet point, describes the sinner who once stood guilty and condemned, but is now declared righteous. Romans 8, verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Maybe you've heard the the definition of justification being just as if I never sinned. Justification, just as if I never sinned. That's actually not a great definition. It's better to say I did sin. But God has now declared me righteous. That's justification. How about this term, the second bullet point, redeemed. Redeemed describes a sinner who was once a slave, but has now been granted freedom. Romans 6, for you were once slaves of sin, but have now, having been made set free from sin, you have everlasting life. And Jesus purchased us out of the slave market of sin and redeemed us to himself. There's a third term. It's the term forgiven. Forgiven describes the sinner who was once a debtor, but whose debt has now been paid in full. Ephesians 1 verse 7, through his blood we have forgiveness of sins. The next bullet point there, adopted. Adopted is a term that describes the sinner who was once a stranger, but has now been made a son, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. He is now our father. We are joint heirs as children of God with Jesus Christ. And then number five, that fifth bullet point there is the term reconcile or reconciled describes the sinner who was once God's enemy, but now has become his friend. Romans 5.10, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And Jesus Christ accomplished what no man could ever accomplish, that is peace with God. And greater than any mission to the moon was Jesus coming to earth so that we might have peace with God. Because Colossians 1 verse 21 tells us, number one in your notes, our previous state, we were enemies because of Adam. 
enemies because of Adam. Colossians 1 verse 21, and you who were once once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. We know that when God's work of creation was finished, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. However, God's creation then became corrupted by man's sin. We know the story. Adam and Eve were given complete liberty to enjoy the Garden of Eden and all of God's creation with the exception of that one tree. In the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were instructed not to eat. But Adam and Eve, as free moral agents, chose to disobey, and they ate of that tree. And the devastating effects of the fall and of the curse went beyond man's labor in work, went beyond woman's labor in childbirth. The devastating effects of the curse went beyond the degeneration of creation or Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden. In some way, the sin nature is now imparted from generation to generation to generation so that all mankind now enters this world born in sin, totally depraved. And because of Adam's sin, all humanity inherits the sin nature so that these things are true. Man's intellect is blinded. His mind is debased. His understanding is darkened. His emotions are defiled. Man's will is predisposed against God. Sometimes we think of man's free will. Well, our free will is predisposed against God. Our previous state, our natural state, is contrary to God as an enemy of God. Then beyond sin being imparted to us, sin's guilt is imputed to us. More than the practical consequences of sin is the positional consequence of sin. Adam's guilt is charged to every man's account. So that the the net result is that positionally, in our natural states, our previous state, if you've been born again, is a state as an enemy against God because of Adam's sin. Romans 5, 12, through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Now, you know these things, but if we think of these things, we might complain that it's not fair. It's not fair that we are charged for someone else's crimes, namely Adam and Eve. But we must be careful lest we play the the blame game like Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember that we are not only enemies positionally, we're also enemies practically. Again, verse number 21, it's our own wicked works that oppose God. So we are not only estranged from God by position, we are hateful enemies of God by practice. We are sinners, and the state, our previous state as unbelievers, if you've been born again, was a hostile enemy relationship with God, and no lunar mission, no religious practice, no political legislation, no savvy negotiation can ever accomplish peace with God. In fact, our sin is separated between us and our God, the prophet Isaiah said. And so our previous state enemies because of Adam. Look at verse 20, just the the latter part of verse 20. Jesus Christ, however, made peace through the blood of his cross. Look at the latter part of verse 21. Yet now 
he has reconciled in the body of his flesh, verse 22, through death. And so I would title this number two, our present condition is reconciled because of Christ. Our previous state, we're enemies because of Adam. Our present condition, we're reconciled because of Christ. And Paul names two things here in verses 20 and 22. First is the blood of Christ. You see that at the end of verse 20. And then Paul says the death of Christ, that's the the beginning of verse 22. There's two important components to this reconciliation, the blood and the death of Christ. Now, the blood is a very important, necessary element for salvation. In the Old Testament, uh, blood was shed. The blood of a spotless lamb was necessary to make atonement for sin. Of course, the book of Hebrews tells us that that old covenant was just a shadow of the things to come, namely Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb of God, presented uh, himself as the new covenant, and his blood would be shed as a payment for our sins once for all. For without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. But be careful not to to misunderstand the blood. Some teach or some believe a, a mystical or a magical dynamic to the blood. The Roman Catholic Church teaches something called transubstantiation, whereby the, the juice or the wine of a communion service becomes the literal blood, as in the plasma and the blood cells of Christ. I believe that's unbiblical, and I've, I've heard of some who believe the blood of Jesus is kept in a bottle up in heaven to be literally used and in some way applied to the soul. I think that's unbiblical. Scripturally, the, the blood indicates the sacrificial life given up in death for atonement of sin which is then the second component, the death. We have the blood and we have the death. The blood of the cross, verse 19 and 20, the body of his flesh through death, there in verse 22. In fact, if we can do this quickly, turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, if I might just read very quickly, I think an important parallel passage and cross-reference, the juxtaposition of the blood and the death. The shed blood and the sacrificial death is in Romans 5, verses 9 and 10. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, Romans 5, verse 9, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, there's our theme again, we shall be saved by his life. And keep your place in Romans 5. There's one more thing I want to show you. But um, what if Christ would have bled without dying? I think we can assume that in his 33 years of life, Jesus would have bled at some point. In fact, we know that he did in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat drops of blood because of the stress that was upon him. The small capillaries near the surface of his skin burst. It's a rare and dangerous medical phenomenon. Did that blood redeem us? Did the blood of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane redeem us? No. What if Christ, let's, let's turn it, what if Christ would have died without shedding his blood? What if he suffered a heart attack or suffocation or drowning? Would Jesus' death have been efficacious for our salvation? The answer is no. 
It was his sacrificial death accompanied by the shedding of his precious blood that was the means of reconciliation. He took the place of sinners. Romans 5, verse number 8. Those who were enemies against God. Romans 5, verses 9 and 10. And died a substitutionary death, shedding his blood to make payment for the sin of all who believe. So, if we are to rehearse our previous state, that's Roman numeral number one, and our present condition, Roman numeral number two, look at Romans 5, verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, verse 18, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So verse 18 is the imputation of sin guilt and the imputation of Jesus' righteousness. Adam's guilt was imputed to us. Jesus' righteousness was imputed to us. Look at verse 19, Romans 5, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So we were enemies because of Adam's sin. We are reconciled because of Jesus' righteousness. And this gospel truth is expressed so well by the hymn of of Chris Anderson, you know it, His Robes for Mine. His Robes for Mine, O Wonderful Exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered Beneath God's rage, he took upon himself our sin. He was robed, clothed in our sin. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. There is the exchange. We're robed in his righteousness, thus justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. Turn back to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, the end of verse 22. Why? Why all of this reconciliation to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight? There are some terms there. I think at the end of verse 22, we need to define holy. What does that mean? It means to be separated from sin and set apart to God. Blameless means without imperfection, without defect or flaw. In the New Testament, it's used to describe Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. Then beyond reproach there means there's no charge against us. There's no allegations, might be the contemporary word. And the ultimate goal of reconciliation is to present us before God as righteous. And so I'm going to call this, number three, our future presentation Our future presentation is righteous before God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. I don't have it in your notes, but you might jot in the margin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him, that is God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him so that Jesus Christ can present us before the Father righteous. Now, along the way you may have heard the hypothetical question. What will you say to God someday in the future when you stand before God and he asks you why he should let you into his heaven? How will you answer? And the right answer would be that you have accepted by faith the person and the work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. That's a good answer. 
I have no problem with the answer, but I quibble with the question. Because we won't be standing before God to even hear the question if we aren't standing before him robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Unless Jesus Christ presents us as righteous before God, we won't be there to hear the question, why should I let you into my heaven? We were enemies of God because of sin. Adam's sin imputed to us. We were reconciled to God because of the substitutionary sacrifice of of Jesus Christ. Our sin was then imputed to Jesus. Are you following this? Adam's sin to us, our sin to Jesus. But someday we will be presented before God, not as enemies, but as sons, because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Folks, mind blown. If you meditate upon those transactions, that's big. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verse 23, number four, our present responsibility is continuing in the faith. Now, don't put your things away. I want you to note the grammatical construction of verse 23 does not express doubt as the word if implies. Colossians 1 verse 23 is not a point of earning your salvation, but evidencing your salvation. The, the, the if language at the beginning of verse 23 is not conditional, but consequential. Paul assumes that this will be the case. We, we call it the perseverance of the saints. I think this is what Jesus was describing in his parable of the sower and the seed, or the the parable of the soils in Luke 8. You remember that the seed was cast upon various types of soil, but but in many of those cases, the the root sprung up but then fell away. And by falling away, they they gave evidence that they were never truly saved. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. And for the child of God, perseverance of the saints or the continuance in the faith is not a threatening proposition because it's predicated upon the preservation of the Savior. He will hold me fast when my faith may fail. And the, preservation, or the perseverance of the saints is possible because of the preservation of God. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Nonetheless, the charge is given to us. The responsibility is ours to be faithful, to continue on. And what does that look like? We don't have time to turn there, but again, you might jot in the margin, 2 Corinthians 5. Listen, perhaps, as I read quickly. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It says that God has reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry 
of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to, the, to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Folks, here's our takeaway this morning. As you think about the gospel message, as you think about your own salvation, your own conversion, your own standing before God by his grace, to the praise of his glorious grace, he has robed you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and accepts you and embraces you. And we have the responsibility to continue in that faith and to share it with one another. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these familiar truths. Lord, may familiarity not breed contempt, but may we celebrate and rejoice in the salvation that you have offered to us. God, I suppose that the majority of those under the sound of my voice this morning have called on the name of the Lord and been saved by faith alone. But Lord, there may be some who have not, who are still in that previous natural state as an enemy of God. Lord, I pray that you will, by your grace, draw them to yourself and grant them the faith to believe and to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.